welcome to episode 2053 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Answering as few words as possible. Yeah, I sound like this. <laughs> this is how I am. <laughs> Apologies mm. to everyone. Not ideal no. for a podcaster to mostly lose their voice, but here we are. I thought I was over whatever this is, and it appears to be back. I mean, it's going to happen. This is your flu game, you know? Mm -hmm. I will say as many words in this episode as I possibly can. And the good news is, Ben, that we already have an interview just in the can, ready to go. You've already said those words, so you don't have to say them again, you know? Not that I sounded much better when I was saying those words, but (laughs) (laughs) later on this episode, we will indeed be talking to our pal Ben Gibbard of multiple bands that he is fronting these days, Death Cab for Cutie and the Postal Service. He is about to embark on a nationwide tour, and we're going to talk to him about that. He'll be playing Transatlanticism in its entirety and give up in its entirety because it's the 20th anniversary of those famous classic albums. But also, Ben is famously a Mariners fan. And the Seattle Mariners are, as we speak, at least still a first place team, technically yes. tied for first, but it counts. Yes. It does count. It's a three way situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not carry any sexiness with it when I say no. that. They did lose to the Oakland A's last night. Julio seems to have a little a little bit of foot pain, Ben. He's mm-hmm. got a little little nerve situation. Not currently in the lineup for their um, series finale against Oakland. But hopefully he will be fine. And if he's not, we're never allowed to talk to Ben ever again. You know, I think that that just will be the new pod rule that he, uh, you know, we brought his happy energy together with mine. And it was it was too much. Uh, The universe had to rebuff it and say, no, no. Yeah. Although, you know, true to our our form as Mariners fans of varying degrees of intensity, we managed to sound nervous and talk about how angry we were with the team (laughs) at various points this season. So hopefully that can serve to counterbalance whatever force we unleashed, you know. Yes. Well, you've already fulfilled your goal of talking about Julio Rodriguez every day. Every day. Rest and relax the rest mm. of this day. Yeah. You can go on vocal rest as I will be doing. <laughs> but but we'll get to Ben in a bit. We have to talk about some waiver madness, some waiver claim going on here yes. that have dominated the baseball news lately. And yeah. one brief follow-up to a follow-up. Last time we talked about, or I guess two episodes, we talked about what could be more impressive than what Shohei Otani has accomplished. And then last time, in response to some listener responses to that topic, some people suggested, well, maybe you could have a, a two-way two-way player. It could be a two-way player in baseball who also plays multiple sports at a high level. And then we talked a little bit about multi-sport athletes and whether we'll ever see them again. But we've gotten a bit of feedback to that from multiple listeners, including David, Patreon supporter, who said, Last time you said two-way, two-way Otani, and I thought, of course, however, you went the two-sport way. Well, I drifted off into a world where Otani not only switch-hit, but switch-pitched, a la Pat Venditti. UCL tears be damned, he's got two. And Matt, another listener, wrote in, 
same suggestion. It's Otani crossed with Pat Venditti, the ambidextrous pitcher. So yes, if a player could come along who not only was a great hitter, but also could pitch with each arm, it would not only outdo Otani, but also true to the spirit of the original question, it would be something that would capture the fancy of the baseball public and be something that had never really been done. It might be that the pitch clock would add complications for the new Venditti, who presumably would have to switch gloves between batters. But if we can have a special Otani rule regarding the DH, I submit that a glove-switching pitch clock allowance is not too much to ask. The original Venditti was not a major league pitcher with either arm, but relied on the platoon advantage to add to his value. But our hypothetical player, since he is hypothetical, can be great with each arm. And in contrast to some other answers you've discussed, it could all be done at the same time and would all be baseball. To round it out, the player could also be a switch hitter, although that by itself would be less impressive because switch hitting, while not exactly common, happens often enough. So yes, Otani... It's already impressive that when he tears his UCL, he's in the lineup the same day or the next day. But in this case, he could also be on the mound, potentially, just throwing with the other arm. So it would be like multiple layers of redundancy, right? And uh, he could potentially pitch more often, I guess. Depends on the fatigue, but you would you would have some protection built in. You'd have a a, a protection pr- protection. <laughs> I'm, so, I, I'm I'm laughing with you. Anna, you <laughs> yes, know. of course. Yeah. but you'd have a spare, right? He'd have a spare right. UCL that he could actually right. use to continue to pitch at a high level. Yeah, and <laughs> and it would be nice because right now, like we Ben, I don't I don't know if you know this, but we added handedness as a yes, filter to the leaderboards. I've, I've long desired. I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, we regret the oversight that has lasted <laughs> years, but it has been rectified courtesy of Sean Dolanar, who mm-hmm. makes so many things at the site work and work well. And we do have a switch pitcher handedness option, but uh-huh. as Sean noted in his post announcing this addition to the site, it is right now literally a leaderboard of one. <laughs> and so <laughs> right. it would be great if there could be more guys on that list, if only to justify the addition of, of the little button. Yeah. Although I will say, I have a very fond memory of Venditti when he was, I think during his stint with Oakland, and they came to Seattle and my dad came with me to a game and he was just like morally offended that this existed. <laughs> he 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 found it very unnerving, I think. <laughs> he he was just very upset. And so um it would perhaps flummox dear old dad a little bit. Huh. But um he was just like, that shouldn't be allowed. It was such a visceral reaction. I was like, I, I think it's fine, Dad. He's like, I don't I don't like that. I don't <laughs> and dad's, you know, dad's not an overly, you know, prescriptive guy uh, yeah. toward other people. But that one, he was just like, no, no, <laughs> just don't, no. A bridge too far, an arm yeah, too far. This is just unnatural. Couldn't take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he's, I, I hope he's okay with Otani, at least. And Shohei oh, Otani remains a Los Angeles angel. In fact, he's not even on waivers But that sets him apart from several other angels, six of them, in fact, as we speak on Wednesday. Almost a quarter of the angels' roster is on waivers right now. So to minimize the amount of time that people have to spend listening to me, do you you want to set up what is happening here? Yes, because this is – it is not unprecedented for players – of real big league quality to find their way to waivers in August. It wasn't even unprecedented 
yesterday, right? We also learned that Harrison Bader is on the waiver wire, Carlos Carrasco, Mike Clevenger. You know, there have been a, a couple of other teams that have sort of taken this route, but none, certainly none yesterday to the extreme uh, that the Angels did. And I don't think that there's really a precedent for this many guys from the 26 man hitting waivers all at once. So let's set up the, the scene and then we will link in the show notes to John Becker's really good explainer on sort of what the mechanics of all of this are and what the payroll implications are. And then we can link to Ben Clemens and his analysis. I know Craig Goldstein also wrote a good piece about this for Baseball Prospectus. So there's hope for everyone trying to sort out what the heck this means, but let's see what we can do here. So these guys... And by these guys, I mean literally Lucas Giolito, (laughs) Matt Moore, Ronaldo Lopez, Hunter Renfro, Randall Gritchick, and Dominic Leone were put on waivers yesterday. Listeners might remember that this Angels team acquired (laughs) Lucas Giolito, (laughs) Ronaldo Lopez, Randall Gritchick, and Dominic Leone at the trade deadline in an effort to sort of bolster their big league roster after they made the decision not to trade Otani. And yesterday they said, enough already. And so those guys have hit waivers. The timing of it is such that once the waiver claims for them are processed, they will be postseason eligible for their new club. You know, teams have to have players on their 40-man, not their 26-man, but on their 40-man roster prior to September 1st for those players to be postseason eligible. Now, if a player is in the team's organization, but not on the 40-man by September 1st, they can still be used as an injury replacement if another player goes on the injured list. But like in general, for guys to be postseason eligible, they have to be on the team and on the 40-man by September 1st. And so by doing this on Tuesday, they will all be claimed by Thursday, and they will be postseason eligible for their new clubs. And this caused just a lot of consternation yesterday and i think that it's an interesting it's an interesting situation for a lot of reasons and i guess like the the tone and posture i am keen to adopt here is like i want to be on my guard but i don't want to be a chicken little because i think it's one of those situations where you don't want to get blindsided by like the the new cool thing that teams are doing that like kind of undermines competitive integrity uh, mm-hmm. across the league. But I do think that there are some factors that are specific to the Angels that are at play for for this move, and then there are some broader league wide implications that we should consider. And I I even Ben I made a little pro con list. I made a little sheet oh, wow. for myself so that I could remember. Yeah, and and just to clarify, because waivers can be confusing and have always been confusing. Waivers are wildly confusing. <laughs> yes, right. Even when yeah. something this wild is not happening. Yes. So people may remember there used to be a waiver deadline, deadline. on August yeah. 31st. So that was like a, a separate deadline, separate from the non-waiver, what we typically call the trade deadline. Yes. Now there's only one trade deadline. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And also... There are no longer revocable waivers as there used to be. So it it used to be that you could just kind of dangle a player out there. You could just put them on revocable waivers and then you could snatch them back, you know, and you could say, eh, no, actually, we just we were feeling out the just what would happen. Right. And and there used to be a lot of breathless headlines about, you know, Team X put Superstar Y on waivers. And it was like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? No, it it happened routinely that teams would just put players on waivers just to sort of suss out the interest or see what happened. And in the vast majority of cases, nothing happened. However, this is different. 
Right. This is not revocable, and this is because of the the time in the year, how how late it is. You can't even pull these guys back. So there's there's no going back if you're the angels. If someone right. claims them, they get them. They're gone. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. no backsies on this. No backsies. Right? Yeah. And also, if the you you can't trade anything for them. Correct. The, the team that claims them gets them for nothing except their remaining salary, which is right. about a, a sixth of their remaining salary because that's uh, how much of the season is left. So, right. and the waiver claim priority, which is still being determined, I guess. Right, because uh, right it's up the to, priority <laughs> on Thursday that will ultimately yes. be the one that, that matters here. Right, and the worse your record is, the higher your waiver claim priority, Correct. and it's it's league-wide, not league-specific. So right. the, the more you've sucked so far, <laughs> the, the better the chance you have of uh, getting yourself a Lucas Giolito or Ronaldo right. Lopez. Although, of course, if you've sucked very much, then you will probably not be interested in their services. This would be playoff teams or, or hopeful playoff contenders right. who would be interested here. Right. And so, like you said, in sort of order from worst to best in terms of the waiver priority, if there is a tie, the claim goes to the team in the same league as the team waiving the player, right? So if you are trying to lay a claim to one of these guys and you were tied with an NL team and you are an AL team, you would get priority. And then in the event that it's two teams from the same league, then you go to the record from last season and on and on until you have reached some way to break the tie. And because it is binding, no take backsies, you know, once you have put in that claim, if you get a player or if you submit a claim for multiple players, which you are allowed to do, and the waiver order does not reset after you have laid claim to one of these guys. So if you are, say, the San Diego Padres and you still are clinging to just the the barest chance that you are going to make the postseason and your pitching is either hurt or at least temporarily likely to be suspended in the case of Suarez because of sticky stuff stuff, you might say, got to catch them all. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have them all. And you have to have room on your your roster to roster those guys. And obviously you have to pay them. So there right. are some stakes to what the teams decide to do here from a claim perspective. And there is language in the relevant document here about like, you have to claim guys in good faith. So you can't lay claim to a player just to block that player from being claimed by another team, which means you can't immediately designate those players for assignment. You know, right. there there are rules in place to try to to try to curb chicanery. And then the Angels were like, we have new chicanery that we would yes. like to do. We have yeah. new You've shenanigans. Anticipated this. Yeah. 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 And it should be a rule that you have to keep Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez together. They yeah. have already been involved in two right. trades together. So it, yeah. it should be a package deal. Like you right. can't break up the set, but there is right. not actually a rule against there that. There is no such rule. So I guess like let's maybe start by talking about the Angels' motivation for doing this, and then we can talk about the potential impact it has to the playoff races, and then like how worried we should be about what this might do to competitive balance, particularly if it were to become a trend, and then like what factors might influence the likelihood of that. Does that mm-hmm. sound like a good 
multi-part structure. Okay. So for the angels, the motivation here is, I think, pretty obvious, which is that this is a technical term for how the last couple of weeks have gone. And I'm going to do a swear, Shane, so get ready to, to bleep it. But I would say that the play for the angels in the last couple of weeks has sucked sh- <laughs> and so <laughs> they have found themselves in a position of not really having any shot of making the postseason, despite the, I think what we thought at the time was the admirable goal of keeping Otani and then really going for it, right? So they went out and acquired all of these guys. But they're not going to see October baseball. And so in an effort to save themselves some money, to reset some luxury tax threshold stuff, they made this move. So as you alluded, these guys are owed, according to uh, John Becker, about $6.4 million for the rest of the year. We currently, and by we I mean John and Jason, have the Angels just barely exceeding the first luxury tax threshold. And so they need to trim about a million and a half dollars from their payroll to get under that luxury tax threshold. And you might say to yourself, well, why do they care about that? Like, they're not going to get your tax on the amount over. And it's like it's $1.5 million. That luxury tax threshold bill isn't going to be a big one. But if you get under the threshold, it resets and eliminates all of the associated penalties with that, which is relevant because they did not trade Otani, but I'm sure we'll stick him with a qualifying offer as he walks out the door. And if they are not a luxury tax payer, their draft pick compensation when he signs with another team, which it seems very likely he will, will come after the second round rather than coming after the fourth round, which is an appreciable difference both in terms of the likely quality of the amateur players available then and the slot money that comes with that pick. So Mm -hmm. they have incentives around that to dip under the luxury tax threshold. And yeah, that's what they have... uh, opted to do. So whether you find those incentives and acting on them compelling, or whether you find this to be a quote unquote bad look, you know, I think those are at least what the incentives are. And so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's embarrassing one way or another if you're the angels and you just went all in and you just acquired all these guys. And then less than a month later, (laughs) you're saying, actually, we're done. We've sucked so bad that we are completely hopeless now. And we're just going to get rid of these guys, whether it's to improve your draft pick compensation or to save several million dollars, which you, you certainly cannot put that past starting Moreno either as a motivating factor. Either way, it obviously looks bad to divest yourself of almost a quarter of your roster with about a month left to go in the season in sort of an unprecedented way. And really, you'd think that Otani has to be looking at this and thinking, what a trash organization, <laughs> right? I mean, if if part of the motivation for going all in and and really trying to compete was, hey, we'll show Otani that we're making our best effort. And who knows, maybe we'll sneak into the playoffs and he'll have a great playoff run. As we talked about, maybe his injury made it slightly more likely that he would want to stay. Maybe it would make the Angels slightly less motivated to keep him. But also just the fact that this reflects poorly on the organization, at least in some ways, like if if it's about staying under the tax to some extent, 
I guess they could sell it to him as, hey, we're uh, saving some money that we can offer you. <laughs> but it just it seems unlikely it, that he would see this happen, that all of these reinforcements would be leaving and he would say, yeah, this is an organization that I want to be part of. So, yeah. so not only does it reflect how their playoff fortunes have completely cratered, but it also seems sort of, sort of a concession that they're not going to keep him, right? I mean, right. there's got to be very little chance that they would keep him either way, but if they at least, at least tried to keep up appearances by employing their players through the end of right. the season, maybe that would be a, a little less embarrassing and uh, might make him less inclined to leave. So to me, it, it almost is kind of conceding that He's out that's the door. over too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that some of the... Um there are elements to this that are specific to the angels, but I also think that they point to the potential pathway for this becoming a larger trend in a way that we would probably find incompatible with like real competitive integrity, right? So like the angels were really bad in the most important two weeks of their season. It took them out of the playoff race. All of these guys are free agents, right? Most of them I don't think any of them would draw a qualifying offer, and most of them aren't eligible for the qualifying offer because they're trade acquisitions, right? And yeah. that makes you ineligible for a QO. And then there's, like, the CBT stuff associated with Otani in particular, even though he wasn't waived. Like, his impending free agency is certainly giving them extra motivation to do something like this. And, like, I think that if you want to be concerned about this becoming a broader trend— like the Angels aren't the last large-ish payroll team that is going to have a bad season, not be competitive in the postseason, and look around and say, "Hey, if we get rid of our, you know, pending free agents, we can save some money." And you know, there's the the savings itself, and as we have, I think, seen over the years, like there doesn't seem to be a small enough amount of money that some owner somewhere isn't like, can't we save that though? Can't we not spend that amount of money, right? Like in the aggregate, you're like, it's $7 million. Like that's nothing. That's not even like, that's like a, maybe a reliever, right? Or in this case, like six guys, but like, that's not a lot of money. That's a weird thing to be willing to subject yourself to sort of the public shaming that is going on with these guys. But like owners are always happy to save as much money as possible, even when the amounts are minute. So we shouldn't underrate that as a motivation. And certainly all you have to do is look at like the fact that other big spending teams are doing this, you know, is the, is moving Carlos Carrasco going to like really appreciably alter the Mets payroll situation? No, probably not, but they want to spend some amount of money. The Yankees want to spend, you know, save some amount of money on Bader, right? Like there's clearly incentive around that stuff. So like that is, that's not great. Yeah, because as you said, I mean, it's it's not unheard of for players to be placed on waivers like mm -hmm. this, but but even some of the non-angels, I think are, are better than the typical caliber of player right. placed on waivers at this point in the season and just given away like that, right? And in Zach Cram's explainer of this for The Ringer, he looked at 
the five players who who changed teams because of waiver claims in the last week of August last year, and it's Austin Davis, Jesse Chavez, Bradley Zimmer, Rob Zestrizny, Tommy Romero. I know Elvis Andrus changed teams earlier in the season because of A's cheapness, but right. like Bader is, you know, not having a, a great year, but is a, a player who potentially has some value and defensive yeah. value and Clevenger's having a pretty good season, right? And I think that is somewhat out of the norm, even even those players being made available in this way. And I, I don't know why it's happening this year. The Angels, I think, have a very specific set of circumstances here, right? Yeah. Where things just went so south for them. So suddenly they're right over the the limit, the thresholds. They have the Otani looming over, Otani's free agency looming over them. So that might not be a, a set of circumstances that repeats itself. Right. But, but does it change the norms around this, right? It's sort of... Right breaking the seal you know one reason you might not have done this before is that it makes you look bad it's embarrassing right. <laughs> but right. now the angels have taken that bullet they've just said yeah we're gonna look bad and people are gonna make fun of us we're gonna do it anyway and then you have the yankees and the mets doing this with players and the guardians etc maybe this just becomes kind of par for the course unless something changes right it's it's sort of surprising in retrospect that it hasn't happened before i don't know right. what has stopped it from happening before other than unwritten rules of competitive integrity or just wanting to avoid scorn there's the the waving team side incentives that you worry about and then there's the claiming team side incentives that you potentially worry about so like the Reds didn't do anything at the deadline, right? Yes. And they, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows if, you know, if any of these guys are going to get to them? Who knows if they're going to get past the Padres, right? AJ's, AJ's AJ, you know, he might just say, like, got to catch them all. But if you're Cincy and you have the opportunity to add a Ronaldo Lopez, like, just for salary, and it's not very much salary, does this alter your incentives around the deadline? And, and you just say, look, I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait and see what's available to me later. I'm a fringe playoff team anyway. You know, as we saw with the Angels, like, two weeks of bad play might sink me. So why expend prospect capital? Why be willing to take on money? Why do any of that stuff to improve my roster if I might be able to just pick up a Ronaldo Lopez or, you know, a Giolito or whatever in a couple of weeks? So you do worry about that piece. But can I offer the flip of all of that and tell you why I'm I'm not like panicking about it? Ben? Yes. And neither am I, to be clear. But, yeah. But I'm I, not but suggesting I you're panicking. <laughs> Although it would be hard to, to tell because yeah, no, you are. I have, I have so little vocal range right now that yeah, I don't think I could convey You're really panic. white knuckling it. Would, it, it would you know. sound the same. But but I think worst case is like, okay, this sort of normalizes this. And yeah. then you see some superstar who who adds even more impact to a playoff roster than a pretty good reliever or Lucas Giolito, right? Like the Angels were not going to do this with Otani because A, it would be even more embarrassing to put Otani in waivers. B, as long as he's still playing, he's still selling tickets for them, right? right? But say you had a player who was not the draw that Otani is, but was 
not even a similar kind of talent, but maybe similar to one-way Otani, you know, a sure. difference-making player. A difference-making right? player, yeah. Yeah, that could happen, right? Teams could look at that and, and say, yeah, the Angels did this with a bunch of guys. This is basically the same. We'll we'll cut this star who's not necessarily putting butts in the seats, but is winning games, but he's making lots of money and he's not going to help us make money or the wins that we get over the rest of the season won't matter. So we will cut him loose. And the the downside of that, the negative interpretation would be that this disrupts the integrity of the pennant race, right? Like right. someone just picks up that player for nothing except their salary right. late in the season could potentially swing a race or swing the playoffs. And there's just something sort of unseemly about yeah. that, right? I mean, yeah. obviously we used to see players change teams in late August. It's not unheard of, but if some star went to one team because that team had a slightly worse record than another team that it's in a race for, and then that team overtakes the other team that didn't have the waiver priority, it would ruffle some feathers, right? There would be, I think, some people upset about the fact that Team A cut that player loose and sure. Team B was just able to pick him up at that point in the season. Sure. I, I think that that would be bad. Yeah. I am skeptical about that happening though. And I think, uh -huh. I mean, I think that the, <laughs> I think the main thing here is that in some ways, like the angels by the extremity of their action seem like they might just inspire the league to change the rules around all yeah, of this that stuff. Is a right. Possibility, yeah. And I think that you could, and you know, I would want to think through like the potential scoreliness that these suggestions would entail. So like, don't, don't hold me to any of this stuff. Right. Because, like, if we know anything about a front office, it's that they're going to be squirrely and that when you present teams with a deadline, they're going to very quickly come to understand the, the sort of optimal strategy around that deadline, right? So we know yeah. that they do that. But, like, one thing you could do is maybe you move – maybe you move the has-to-be-in-our-org piece of this back closer to the trade deadline itself. So – you know, not necessarily he has to be on the 40 man. Maybe you keep that date the same, but like you move the rest of it back. So it's more proximate to the deadline. The impact late on potential playoff races is minimized because, again, it's so close to, you know, the August 1st actual trade deadline. And so, sure, there are still going to be teams that are cheap or like really keen on getting under the CBT, but. If they're presented with the option of being cheap and getting under the CBT and getting a prospect back or just getting the salary relief, maybe they do those moves at the deadline, right? And it prevents a team, it prevents them getting the same salary relief if, you know, the guy has to have been within a competitive team's org on, I don't know, August 5th, August 10th, whatever, right? So, like, maybe they do that. Maybe you change how many guys you can release or claim at the same time maybe you i don't know you could do a, you could do a bunch of things yeah i don't know something salary or war based i don't i don't know if the union wouldn't like that or or whether that would be too squishy but sort sure. of trying to restrict the caliber of player who could move that late or i guess you could just move the trade deadline back a bit potentially right. and then at least, you know, you'd be making trades as opposed to just giving sure. a player away and getting a player for nothing in terms of talent. Like, 
we talked about the history of the trade deadline and how back in the 20s, uh, the Red Sox just sourly dumped Joe Dugan on the Yankees. And that basically led to the trade deadline moving earlier in the year for right. the next 60 something years. So there has been uproar about this sort of thing before. And I could see that happening again. But yeah, I don't know how motivated Rob Manfred is to do something about this, but Obviously, some owners prefer to be able to do it, and, and they're his bosses as well. Sure. But, but I could see it being a, a potential problem from a PR perspective. And I, I can imagine just as many owners and front offices being like, hey, do something yeah. about this. Like, this yeah. is not within the spirit of the, the waiver deadline like yeah. or the waiver system. Like, come on. You know, and we know that there are rules within the system now to try to prevent some amount of of shenanigans, as I said. So, like, you know, I think that they don't want to make a a mockery of that system. I have been wrong before. So, you know, and when it comes to the question of, like, good players, you know, maybe not Otani, but like really good players moving for nothing. I do think that that's a concern. I'm I'm skeptical that the incentives around moving those guys are as loose as the concern around this would imply because just pick a name, Ben. Pick one name that kind of fits this this mold for you. Who's a who's a guy? Pick a guy. I was gonna say like Kyle Tucker because Kyle he's a Tucker. very very good player, but, sure. but sort of un, unknown, underrated, not a not a star commensurate with his abilities. That is true. I don't know if Kyle Tucker like you know, Kyle Tucker's making good money in art, but he's like, so like, imagine, imagine Kyle Tucker two years from now, right? right? Yeah. When he's, or, when he's an impending free agent. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, imagine Kyle Tucker in 2025, Kyle Tucker's playing great. He's getting big art raises. He's making per roster resource. He made $5 million this year. So like, let's say in 2025, he's making 15. I don't know. Right. Like he's making some, a reasonable chunk of change, not a crazy amount, but some amount of money. And so, like, you're a team with a Kyle Tucker. And, you know, I don't know that he even really needs to be a free agent, candidly. But, like, you know, like, let's say you're a team with a Kyle Tucker. And Kyle Tucker would be, to the team acquiring him at the deadline, a rental. And so it would, you know, limit his his potential prospect return, for instance. But he's still going to net you a, a good player, right? He might net you a couple of good players. And so are there teams that would look at that scenario and say, you know, those good players, whatever, we still want to save this money? Sure, I'm sure there are, right? Like the A's exist. <laughs> they literally cut Elvis Andrews so that he wouldn't hit benchmarks so that they had to pay him more. So like, yep. I don't want to underrate the cheapness of owners. But I do think that in general, when you have good players who are available on the, you know, around the deadline, that you want to get meaningful value back for them and you want that value to exceed like just a couple million dollars. And so I do think that that, you know, that would matter. Now, maybe on a bigger contract, that calculus starts to change. But I don't know. I I still am skeptical that for like really, really good, actually playoff race altering players that this would be the approach that teams would take. I think that they would just move them at the deadline. And like, mm -hmm. maybe you need to change. I think you need to change the rule to like really lock in. Hey, you can't be a team that was a fringe playoff 
team at the deadline decided not to sell, was trying to win, and then realizes you're out of it, maybe you do need to to move the calendar around a little bit. But I'm skeptical that it's like that really good players would be as freely available as the concern around this suggests. And I think the other piece of it for me is like, we have talked a lot about how the the strategy of tanking, hard tanking the way that the Astros did, has lost some oomph when a lot of teams are doing it. And so if you had 10 teams doing what the Angels are doing, I'm skeptical that like all those guys would get claimed. And then it's not a good strategy anymore because you're still just having to pay them, right? Because that's the other piece. It's like if if Lucas Giolito somehow doesn't get claimed, and he absolutely will, but like let's imagine for a moment that like everybody lost access to their fax machine and they didn't send in their waiver claims and he just did, doesn't get claimed. He just goes back to the Angels and they still have to pay him. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like there is going to be a point at which a mass adoption of this strategy limits its utility for any given team because you just have so many guys and not all of them are going to be able to find their way to a new home because like you do have to have roster space for this, right? And not every team's going to want to cut guys or have guys who are obvious cuts who are, you know, worse than what their options would be. And I don't want to I'm struggling to find the right tone here, Ben, because I don't want to discount teams wanting to be cheap and squirrely. Teams love being cheap and squirrely. <laughs> it's like arguably one of their favorite modes, you know. I don't want to disincentivize concern here. I don't want to tell people not to worry because I think that it needs to, you know, you need to keep a like weather eye on it. And I really do think it behooves the league to decide like what kind of behavior here are we going to tolerate? And when they have identified the stuff that does not fit with their understanding of like what the waiver wires for, you know, what kind of impact, late impact they are willing to have this kind of stuff have on playoff races, they should bracket that behavior and and say, you can't do this anymore because we know that teams given the license to behave in a cheap and squirrely way are going to do it. Like they're going to, they're going to do it. So as always, I am arguing for regulation. (laughs) The other potential pro, I suppose, is, is that, Hey, these players are free. Oh yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, they, they get to desert the sinking ship. Oh, yeah. You, you, you I, get <laughs> players that are on a lousy team that are just playing out the string. Yes. I mean, they're probably pretty pleased about it, right? They oh, got yeah. a, a get out of Angels free card. Oh, and yeah. You could make a case that from a league-wide perspective, from a fan perspective, that, hey, okay, we can concentrate more talent on contending teams and yes. rosters that are actually going to be playing into October here. Like there's often a proposal about like, oh, you know, if you defeat a team, you should get to take one of their players for the next round. Or sometimes we've talked about the potential to like loan players yeah. out if you're out of it. Right. And there's some precedent for that. So maybe you could say, well, hey, this gave us something to talk about and to analyze. And also, you get to see these players. Uh, they get to go and win somewhere, and maybe it uh, equalizes the playoff field a little bit because the very best playoff teams aren't going to get dibs on these guys. So maybe right. it uh, gives a little leg up or an arm up to a lesser contender. So you could 
you could find some some positives in that too. Oh yeah, I mean like as so like yesterday I was uh, texting with with some folks, you know, I was like sending some feelers out to to some team folks to be like, what's your take on this? Because I saw the reaction to it on Twitter, and it was like much more the concern was heightened in a way that I was not experiencing. Like I I don't want teams as I said, to have excuses to be cheap and squirrely, but I was like not as concerned about that as it seemed like the the crowd was. And so I was like, uh, you know, help me kind of dial in what my level of concern should be here. And I, I did talk to someone who said basically what you did. They were like, isn't this, isn't this good for players? And I was like, yeah, if you're Ronaldo Lopez, like this whips because <laughs> right. you're getting out of there and you're no. If what ends up happening is, congratulations, you're just a Padre now. Like, maybe the the impact of that is blunted because, as, you know, we saw when when Ben Clemens asked Dan to, like, run the zips on it. Like, if, if San Diego claims, you know, him and Matt Moore and Giolito, like, it does move their playoff odds, but it doesn't move them that much because yeah. their playoff odds are very scant. And so there's the very real possibility that all of this ends up not mattering very much at all, at least in terms of this year, because the most potentially impactful of those players ends up on a team that's really on the fringes and won't end up being in the playoffs when it's all said and done. But the idea of being able to get out of what has to just be like a profound bummer of a situation and going to, you know, Maybe you go to one of the better teams. Like maybe San Diego decides not to do anything and you end up on Cincinnati or like you end AJ up on Preller like, deciding not to do anything. That I, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, sometimes people like fall down and like they get distracted by having to deal with that for a day and then they like forget <laughs> to put in their way climbs. You know, they're like, oh, crap, I tripped and now I don't have any of them. You know, I meant to catch them all, even Gritchick, and I didn't <laughs> do it. You know, um, it could happen. It probably won't, but it, it could happen. Right. But maybe you end up on. Cincy, maybe you end up on the Twins, maybe, you know, you end up with the Diamondbacks, like, there are a lot of, every team needs useful pitching, and so every team that has any shot at the postseason is going to put in, I would imagine, a claim on at least one of these guys, and so, like, from that perspective, it's great, like, again, I'm struggling to, like, get the, I feel like I'm not getting the tone right where I want it, Ben, because I'm not unconcerned, but I'm not panicked maybe this is what whelmed like sounds like yeah um and i don't want to you know if you are sitting there and you're like this just offends my competitive sensibilities i think that's a completely reasonable reaction and i i again do think that the league needs to be like oh this is behavior that has now we have observed it. It exists in the world. And you are right that like they apparently do not feel any embarrassment about this. So what do we what do we actually want the rules to be around this stuff? Like they should decide that and they should come up with something that puts at its center preserving the integrity of those pennant races. But I'm skeptical it's gonna matter a lot this year. I'm skeptical it really fundamentally changes the incentives for teams, but but I should also acknowledge that, like, it only needs to change the incentives for a couple of teams for it to be, like, a weird, right. fluky thing we have to worry about every year. And so uh, they should change the rules so that we don't have to. Did I, Meg Rowley, expect to be editing about baseball 
essentially trade-related news into the evening hours <laughs> on August 29th. Ben, I submit that I did not expect to do that because, like, I had been told that we weren't doing this anymore, and then we did. Yeah. So maybe we should really get rid of it so that I can not have to work at night in the month of the later parts of August. Like, this is the deal that we struck. <laughs> I am really stressed and then I get two months of being less stressed, and then I'm really stressed again. <laughs> this is really all about me. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I'm, I'm sure Rob Manfred will take that into account, but it gave us uh, something compelling to talk about. It's sort of a fascinating situation, and we will see how this waiver claim cornucopia shakes out, and we'll, we'll talk about where everyone ended up next time. But for now, we can take a quick break, and we will be back with Ben Gibbard of Postal Service and Death Cab for Cutie to talk about those bands and his tour and the Seattle Mariners. Well, you can hear Ben Gibbard on every episode of Effectively Wild, in a sense, because he wrote and performed the little ditty that plays under our outros. But today he's here in person to talk about playing some songs of his that are slightly better known than the Effectively Wild outro theme and also to talk about the first place Seattle Mariners. Welcome back, Ben. It's lovely to be back. Good to hear you guys again. Especially under these circumstances. I, I keep seeing these stats or fun facts about how the Mariners are in first place for the first time since 2003, which is great cross-promotion for you because you can say, <laughs> oh, 2003, what a year. Do you know what else <laughs> happened that year? I put out a couple albums, and guess what? You can come see me play them. So everything's uh, coming up 2003 for you these days. I really should lean into that, shouldn't I? I, yeah. I didn't realize this was another angle I could start using in the, <laughs> with, with all this pre-tour press. Yeah, right. You talk to the New York Times, you talk to Billboard, then you talk to Effectively Wild. That's kind of the, the trio <laughs> that most musicians, before they go out on the roads, they, they want to make those stops. But when we talked to you last September... I gave you some grief. I took you to task for scheduling a tour that coincided with the first Mariners playoff appearance in more than 20 years. <laughs> but of course, how could you have known that the Mariners would be playing into mid-October? What reason had they given you to think that that might happen? And once again, I guess you've put your obligations to your bandmates and your fans before your fandom, and you are touring during the postseason, although this time the tour ends during the ALCS. So I don't know whether you, you planned it this way or whether <laughs> you, you thought the Mariners were going to be a perennial playoff team and you'd better stop touring in late October just in case or whether it worked out that way. Yeah, I, it kind of just worked out that way. Um, I just want to assure everybody who has tickets to this tour that I'm not going to pull that move that that one country artist yes. pulled where he he canceled the show because UNC was playing yeah. the, final to go to the final four or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Which, is, with my understanding, was not even a school that he had gone to, which seems... <laughs> Weird. Uh, not that not that I went to the University of Mariners, but you know, I, you know, it's a little different. I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I I feel like I do not regret booking this tour during this time, and certainly earlier in the season, I was not thinking that I'd be missing anything. Uh, <laughs> but uh, now I'm a little nervous. You know. <laughs> Right. Yeah. But from what you told me last October, it, it sounds like it was not an entirely unpleasant experience for you to be on stage during Mariners postseason games and have people in the crowd telling you what was happening or, or to be surprised after it ended. I, I guess it's ideal to get to watch your team in the playoffs, but it sounded like you made the best of that situation. 
Yeah, well, the culmination of that was the comeback against the Blue Jays. We were playing in South Carolina, and we were backstage watching the game on TV. And, you know, one thing is leading to another. And I think right before we went on stage, they had, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact sequence of events, but if they had not tied it, it was looking like it was going that way. You know, it was like all the momentum was on the Mariners' side. And our tour manager was like, do you want to push by five minutes? And I'm like, I, I can't do that. I, 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 can't, I can't be that guy. Like, I, we said we'd go on at nine. We're going on at nine. We're not going to make people wait. That's really unprofessional. And so a couple songs in, some guy, like, screams out in the crowd, the Mariners won! <laughs> and I was like, you, do not mess with me. Are you serious? And somebody came over my ears like, yeah, they, uh, they pulled it out. They won. And then the rest of the show was like jubilation yeah. with, with, with the understanding that I got to get off stage and then go and watch the highlights of the things I just missed. Sad that I missed them, but also very happy to see um, you know, the outcome of that particular game. I was listening to the Orioles broadcast yesterday and they had Joan Jett in the booth. I guess she's a huge Orioles fan, like has been to fantasy camps and everything and like, you know, into the minutia of the roster and, you know, how Gunnar Henderson was performing at the beginning of the year and how his defense was bolstering him when his offensive numbers weren't great. And she was saying that she she will sometimes take her phone with her on stage and cover it. And then like between songs, we'll check in <laughs> when she knows <laughs> that the Orioles are playing. So you have an option and from no less luminary than Joan Jett. I mean, if anyone can give you permission, I think she's on the list. So, Well, there's also a famous story about Johnny Ramone having a TV placed where like a teleprompter would be for. Yeah. And then he's watching the Yankees while he's playing a Ramones set. We might have discussed that last year. Uh, I will not be doing that. I feel it's very important to be present uh, amongst yeah. people who bought tickets for these shows. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I also, I'm sure we've all had this experience watching our team where you're out in public and you check the score and you just like scream an expletive at your phone and people are like, what? What happened? Did somebody die? And they're like, right. no, the Mariners blew... <laughs> You know, like more Brandon Morrow came in and blew the lead or whatever. You know, I'm obviously okay. dating that reference, but like, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where you have to like that's okay to an extent in public when not on stage, but I think for me I, I can't I can't go there. Yeah. I don't think any Yankees fans, musicians will have to worry about that this October if <laughs> no? if Johnny were still with us. <laughs> Wow, Ben. No. <laughs> I was going to say you're you're dating that yourself with that reference although that it could apply to so many dates is uh, <laughs> part of the problem that the Mariners face. But I'm curious like how how has this season kind of washed over you because you know, we got the we got the postseason monkey off our back and then we start watching this team at the beginning of the year and as you said, like they were not good, you know, for <laughs> A lot no. of it there, and Julio seemed like he was mired in the sophomore slump. That you didn't know if he was going to get out of at least this season. I think people were confident that Julio was going to be okay, but you know they were like looking up at the Astros, which they're used to, but also the Rangers, and you got all these upstart teams in the East, and then we're here. So like, how how did that strike you? Because when you're when you're done worrying about making the postseason like once more in your lifetime it's a relief but then they're that they are at times still the mariners so like how's it been for you 
I spent a good amount of the season being very angry. <laughs> you know, I was angry at ownership. I was angry at Jerry. <laughs> I was angry at the team, various players on the team. I, I think Larry Stone had written a piece I, at some point in June or July yeah. that, you know, the headline was something like, is this the most infuriating Mariners team of all time or something like that? And my answer was, yes, it is. It's 100% the most infuriating team that I can remember, at least in the last couple decades. And, you know, I think it was very easy to look at what the Rangers had done over the past two off-seasons by in spending money, which, like, you know, I, I don't know if John Stanton knew that was allowed, you know, that you were allowed to spend money on players, you know, more than, you know, like a utility outfielder. And, uh, you know, so I, maybe somebody should let him know in this offseason, I hear there's a guy on the on the block that might be interesting uh, for the Mariners to to at least, you know, kick the tires on. He's a little banged up now, but I think he'll be fine. You know, it might be worth kind of, you know, reminding him that you're allowed to spend money on the team. Right. You know, it's like obviously over the last since July 1st, I guess they've you know, they've they've had this you know incredible record and they've been playing wonderfully and the offense is back alive and it always felt I'll admit I didn't have a lot of faith in June yeah but I think that because you know asking you know saying something like well all, all the offense needs to do is get going and we're going to be in good shape it would felt like a really stupid asinine thing to say when no one was hitting you know right but but at this point it's like yes of course the you know the, the starting rotation with the exception of Castillo and obviously Ray is injured and you know it's basically a homegrown rotation the bullpen has been phenomenal and people are starting to hit. So, you know, that last piece, which obviously is a huge piece of the team actually deciding they want to score runs, now that that seems to be occurring on like a laughable kind of, with laughable kind of consistency. Yeah. I mean, granted against the, you know, you know, the Royals and the A's. Sure. Um, <laughs> but hey, a win is a win. They're technically yep. major league baseball teams. Will be very important, certainly when we look at the last couple of weeks of the schedule, which go Rangers, Astros, Rangers, Astros. <laughs> yeah. 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 Last year, we talked to you right before the end of the regular season, and you were still very wary of even conceding that the Mariners might be a playoff team, though the odds were certainly in favor of that happening. So do you feel like now that it has happened once that you can at least consider the possibility before it's official or is there still a part of you that is reluctant to consider that a, a fait accompli? I mean, you know, there's a month left in the season and, you know, my fatalist concerns are, you know, have a lot to do with the Mariners peaking too early. <laughs> there's plenty of time for like a brutal losing streak in there of which I, of course, hope doesn't happen. And, you know, there things seem to be firing on all cylinders. So even if they're firing at 75% cylinders, I, I think the Mariners have a, a really good chance of making the playoffs. But, they, they, you know, American League is really tight this year. And, you know, between the AL East and the AL West, there's only so many wildcard spots. And it's going to come down to the last couple, last week or so. I just think it's, you know, I don't think anybody should be, like, booking non-refundable flights to Seattle for the playoffs quite yet, you know. <laughs> Now that you're in this mode of revisiting some of your former work, have you reconsidered my proposal of re-recording Itro's theme as Julio's theme and <laughs> switching it up to Go, 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 Julio, which I don't want to say it writes itself. You wrote it, but it, it would almost <laughs> re-record itself. It fits. I mean, at this point, I think Julio is, 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 is very much deserving of his own song, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Macklemore is like 75% 
<laughs> done writing it. I, I feel like it might be coming out. Knowing Macklemore, it'll probably be out in like October 1st. Will he be hearing this thing? So I, I haven't written one yet, um, but I, I do feel like someone's going to beat me to that punch, and it's probably going to be Macklemore. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Macklemore, no. Um, I mean, like he was present for a lot of this. Actually, did you get to enjoy any of the All Star stuff in Seattle? Were you there for any of that, Ben? I was out of town for uh, playing a festival, uh, and I got back the day of the Home Run Derby. Mm. And I have to admit that I had a couple options uh, for tickets or to kind of participate in that, seeing either the Home Run Derby or the All Star Game. But I have to admit that the All Star Game feels a little bit like baseball Coachella. You know, where it's like I go to a fair amount of games and, you know, now that interleague plays is the way it is like, you know, you have myriad opportunities to see a lot of these players in person now. And so the idea of just fighting through like a festival environment to like, you know, see your favorite band, so to speak. Yeah. Is kind of like, you know, what, I'll see them when they come play their own show. You know, I'll come. Sure. I'll see I'll see them at the show box. I don't need to go out to the gorge with 30,000 other people to see this thing. And so, you know, I, I politely declined that I watched the game on TV. I mean, obviously, the Home Run Derby is, in my opinion, far more fun than the All-Star Game yeah. because nobody hits in the All-Star Game because it's like you're, you know, it's like everybody coming out of the pen is the greatest pitcher of all time. So, um but it was it was pretty it was pretty fun to see how the city kind of embraced baseball for an extended weekend, and it seems as if that fervor and excitement has kind of carried on to, you know, this run that the Mariners are on now. One thing Macklemore doesn't have is a crossover event in honor of Jose Caballero's birthday. <laughs> we are we're posting this episode on Death Cabbie for Cutie Day in Seattle. And I know you have a long relationship with the team in various forms, and you've performed at the ballpark many times, thrown out first pitches. How did this come about, this T-shirt that is sort of a death cab, we have the facts style blended with Jose Caballero's birthday? Is it just, <laughs> is it as simple as someone said, cab, cabbie? It just, <laughs> it makes sense. We've got to make this happen. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, Trevor Gooby, who's the ballpark manager, I think that's his official title for um, T-Mobile, had uh, sent me like an internal memo. I don't know if it was like a press release or whatever, but they kind of give things these kind of like humorous names or pun names or whatever. And Caballero had had a pretty good day and they were putting out this press release at something that was like death cabbie for cutie, you know, Jose Caballero did this and that and this and that. And I'm not exactly sure how that evolved into uh, a themed kind of day, but, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it had something to do with, you know, the, the the marketing geniuses at the Mariners. We had our friend Zach Bolton, who's a great designer in town. He has a he owns and operates Porchlight uh, Coffee and Records on Capitol Hill. Longtime friend of ours has designed a bunch of records and T-shirts and stuff for us. You know, he we had him design the shirt and, you know, I, I really love the fact that he basically used the artwork from We Have the Facts and then just put a baseball player, which kind of vaguely resembles Jose <laughs> Caballero on the you know, on the shirt. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, when Jose Caballero came up, I don't remember exactly when in the season, but it was at that point where I was maybe at my maddest, at my most <laughs> mad at this team. <laughs> And I was just really taken with how this dude, who I believe was like a, a pure rookie, came up with this like swag and this attitude like he'd been there forever. And like, you know, I, I don't think he's going to end up in the Hall of Fame at the end of his career. 
but the fact that he was kind of he came in with this swagger and like attitude at a time when the team was really scuffling and not playing well and people didn't seem like they were having a very good time was just a real breath of fresh air for me and I think for a lot of other fans as well. Like, who does this guy think he is? Like, <laughs> barking at, like, you know, a veteran pitcher on the mound. This is his third at-bat in the big leagues, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, that that was just really fun to see. So I, I was really happy when this kind of co-pro kind of came across our proverbial desk. <laughs> When uh, when Eric Longenhagen wrote a uh, Caballero for the Mariners prospect list, he comped him to Patrick Beverly, the kind of player you love when he's on your team and hate when he's not. That's a really good analogy. That's a yeah. really good comp. Yeah. Yeah, because he, gosh, he seems to mess with opposing pitchers' timing on um, on pitch clock stuff more than anyone else in baseball. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, and he just, you know, I mean, you know, obviously that, you know, his numbers are not incredible at this point, but at the same time, he seems to kind of come into the game and affect the game in some form or fashion, whether it's in, you know, on defense or, you know, running the bases or just, you know, pissing off people in the other team, you know, I'm all for it. I'm curious as you look ahead to the postseason, we're going to just like make you contemplate this as a reality. It's not kind like, you know, sur- survey the American league field for us, Ben, like, who are you, who are you most concerned about as these Mariners try to make their way through October potentially? I mean, it's probably just a pretty predictable answer, but I think it always just comes down to the Astros. I, you know, I think that there are these intangible elements of having been there, done that before. You know, I, I would imagine that if you're the Astros and you've been to the World Series so many times and, you know, won it once, you know, for real, um, you know, there's kind of this like the heartbeats probably a little bit doesn't raise as high as it might for other teams who are relatively new or inexperienced in that in that uh, part of the season. You know, I would have worried about the Rays until all of these kind of pitching injuries and, you know, other unmentionable things happened yeah. with their team. I would have been concerned about them. The Rangers seem to have a, a very, they seem to have a very real bullpen problem, which makes me happy, but also doesn't necessarily make them a huge I mean you know the offense they could they could explode and score 15 runs on you but yeah they're not doing a great job of closing out games so um I'm not as concerned about them famous last words but yeah it just comes down to the Astros and just the fact that while you know the Mariners have kind of had their number this particular season I just always fear them turning it on in the postseason and just like oh here we go another Astros World Series appearance you know how fun (laughs) (laughs) Because I know Billboard doesn't give you unlimited chances to get your baseball takes off, do you have any non-Mariners related thoughts? Is there anything that you've particularly enjoyed this season? I am given to understand you've enjoyed the Angels implosion for one thing, but (laughs) new rules related, any other individual players or teams that you have uh, found some delight in this year? Yeah, I think as much as, you know, a a lot has been written about this and, you know, I think a lot of us probably are not super keen on giving Rob Manford much credit for anything. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think these new rules are a resounding success. I mean, I, I don't want to hear it from anybody who... It, it seems like at this point, if you're saying that the longer games are better, you're just being a contrarian, you know? there's They're not better. This is so much better. This is so much more exciting, you know? And, and at this point, you know, I, obviously at the beginning of the season or spring training things felt like they're moving too swiftly, but then you just kind of adjust to the new pace and it doesn't feel rushed at all. In fact, sometimes I'm like, get in the box. Come on, let's go. 
right. you know, I'm on record as being a, uh, an Angels hater. So, uh, you know, I have enjoyed watching the Angels implode. Uh, sorry to any of our uh, Orange County. Uh, sorry, not sorry to our Orange, Orange County fans. Um, you know, tickets can be, uh, you know, they can be returned to point of purchase. Um, and, you know, I, I've really enjoyed watching the Reds this year. You know, it was painful to kind of lose a prospect like Noel V. Marte to the, to the Reds. But at the same time, you know, we got Castillo out of the deal. <laughs> And, yeah. um, and, you know, you know, it's, it's always fun when these kind of secondary or tertiary market teams, these like low budget teams kind of come out of nowhere with a youth movement that is enjoyable and, and unexpected. And, you know, I mean, you, you, you have to, you know, your heart has to be dead to not enjoy watching Ellie De La Cruz, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I often find myself if the Mariners are out of it at some point, which, you know, let's face it, has been the story for most of the last 20 years, you know, there, there always needs, I always need to find like a bandwagon team to jump on in the postseason. And my hope is always that it's one of these like smaller market teams. I, 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 I've, I have a lot of friends uh, from Wisconsin who are big Brewers fans. And I feel that as a Seattleite, it is acceptable to root for the Brewers because they're, they're, you know, technically a Seattle team. Sure. So it's like, it's okay to embrace the Brewers, of course, you know, unless they're playing the Mariners. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm just hoping for, you know, I'm hoping obviously the Mariners win the World Series, but if that doesn't become the case, you know, it'd be nice to see the the Reds or the, the, the Brewers kind of make a real run, you know? So I read somewhere that when the conversations initially started about the tour that you were about to embark on, that... There was talk of we could make it two separate tours that Death Cab could tour and play transatlanticism and then the Postal Service could tour and play Give Up and that you said, no, people would want to see both together. That would be so much more fun. And the first time I saw when I saw the announcement that this was happening, I thought, well, he is now a two-way player. I mean, literally, he is <laughs> he is playing two ways. He's playing with, with both bands here. So it seems like that made all the sense in the world if you were able to schedule it that way. And it also sounds demanding for you, although I think I read that you noted somewhere else that this will actually be less total time for you to play than at a typical Death Cab concert because you've got two 45-minute albums, right, with a break between. So this is actually easy for you to play two ways, unlike Otani, I guess this is actually this is actually a, a bit of a break for you. You know, I, let's let's try to get this let's try to get this trending that I am the Otani of indie rock, the Shohei yeah. Otani of indie rock. I, I, re, I, you know, I really like I, I, this is very self-aggrandizing and ridiculous, and I really like it. So let's see if we can kind of get this going in the world, you know. And it, it can just start with anybody who's listening, just be like, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I heard Ben Gibbers doing you know both bands. He's kind of like the Shohei Otani of indie rock if you really look at it. Yeah. Um, that would be that would be nice, uh, you know. I prefer, hopefully know Tommy John in my future, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, you know, it is going to be about the same length of show or at least time on stage for me, and you know, roughly the same amount of material as far as like a song count. So I'm not I'm not super concerned about that. Um, I think the thing that's going to be the most not so much difficult, but it's going to be the strangest element of this tour is just the context switching. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. you know, eleven songs into a set. You know, when normally Death Cab would be literally halfway through the main set. Okay, let's leave stage and here are two new people that are coming on stage (laughs) and you are playing a different set of material. I think it's going to be weird for a couple nights and then it's going to kind of, we'll get into a rhythm with it. 
Will you do a wardrobe change to distinguish between death cab Ben and postal service Ben halfway through? Uh, there will be a wardrobe change. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it a wardrobe change with a capital W, capital C. <laughs> It'll be uh, just you know as much for my own comfort changing clothes, but it, it won't go. It's not like I'm going to go from uh, you know my typical stage you know attire into like a uh, you know a like a tuxedo or anything like that. It's going to be just a, a fairly modest change of clothes. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think either band strikes me as, as tuxedo vibe. You know, it's not the energy that you're, <laughs> that you guys are really bringing to either set. I'm, I'm curious, like, what is the, as you, as you talk to people, like, what is their response to this, Ben? Because like, when I saw that you guys were doing this, I was thrilled and then felt very old <laughs> and and but also delighted because it's like you know we've we've talked about this like your music has been important to me it's been important to Lindbergh it's like it's a sort of foundational text for a lot of people who like this kind of music and are of a certain age so what has what has the response been like you know I certainly have gotten a lot of like oh my god 20 years like yeah. you know one of the things about growing older in a in a rock band is on one hand, I'm parroting something I said earlier, uh, so forgive me, but you know, you you kind of become not so much a keeper of people's memories, but like a trigger of memory. And you know, for I and I find that it's really like music and smells are the two things that really kind of trigger memories. You know, I have this like very formative memory of listening to freewheeling Bob Dylan with my dad you know, my first Thanksgiving home from college, and I hadn't really listened to much Dylan at that point. And when the girl from the North Country came on, I, he, I could see him disappear into another place and he was thinking about somebody that wasn't my mom. You know, it had this like very transformative, like time machine element, you know, in his life. And that's, I found that to be very true about music in my life. The other side of that is sometimes people don't like to be reminded that they're older now. <laughs> you know, and I think that part of the indignance that sometimes comes from like, oh, my God, can you believe that that band's still around or like, they're still making records? They're still touring. I think there's an element of it, which is like, I don't want to be reminded of the fact that 20 years have passed since I was a young person, <laughs> you yeah. know. But, you know, I think that like, for example, I just I just went and saw The Cure uh, down in San Francisco in June. And, you know, they've been one of my favorite bands since I was 12 and, um, you know, I think when you have a relationship with a record or a band or whatever, you know, it not only marks time in your past, but I think if this music, I think a lot of music that's really kind of timeless in one's life is the kind of music that you carry with you throughout your life. And it starts to kind of like, it marked moments in your life when you were younger, but it also slots into experiences you're having as an, a now older person. And I think that just by the sheer nature of the fact that we're doing this tour and the response to this tour indicates to me that, you know, these records have 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 those places in some people's lives. And that's an incredibly humbling thing to be a part of. You know, I, I, I kind of keep coming back to this William Gibson quote that I love, you know, where he says something about, you know, somebody's asking him about his, his, his the Neuromancer trilogy. And he says something like, well, you know, it's like. I feel like my these books are kind of like my children who went off in the world and had great adventures. You know, you are the author of them. You are the creator. But at the same time, you know, what they, how they exist in the world is very unique to the people who experience them and has right. in some ways nothing to do with you. Yeah. 
there are a lot of bands that are just on the nostalgia circuit full time, right? Whether it's uh, bands that have very few or sometimes uh, no original members left and are still kind of clinging to the name or a band that just hasn't recorded for years and years, but they're still kind of touring on the old war horses. And I wonder if the fact that that is very much not the case with you and with Death Cab, that you are very actively recording and, and have had a, a fertile creative period, that you're coming off an acclaimed new album, Asphalt Meadows, that we talked to you about last year. You've been touring on that. You put a new single, An Arrow in the Wall, out this month. I wonder whether that makes this more palatable or appealing to you that it's not like... I'm just uh, reliving past glories here. You are actively, you know, an artist making new art, but also giving people the experience of hearing these old songs that they really like, too. It certainly feels better to be doing this tour on the heels of your words, not mine, like a critically acclaimed <laughs> record. You know, I, I, I think I might feel differently or I might be a little more defensive if Transatlanticism was the only record that we made that anybody ever cared about. And, you know, we had been just making bad music with terrible collaborations and chasing recent trends and uh, whatever, uh, you know, having weird features and things like that in a, in a, in like a attempt to kind of remain current. So I think that, you know, the response to Asphalt Meadows in particular, it really emboldens me that this was a good thing to be doing. It's like, yeah, we've made a record that, you know, the people who care about these things like, for the most part. And I've, I've always felt as a music fan, even more so than, but also as a, a performer, that, you know, we've all had that experience where you go to see a, a band, you know, that you're excited about, a performer, and they have a new record, and they're far more excited about the new record than you are. Mm -hmm. You know, it'd be like if you went to see the Rolling Stones and, like, they didn't want to play Goodbye Ruby Tuesday or Satisfaction. They wanted to hit you with like an hour of new material <laughs> before they played a song that you recognized. And which would be completely you know, not in keeping with why people were there in the first place, you know. And I think that as a fan, I've certainly had those experiences when I've gone to see a band that I love and they've they've pulled that kind of thing and it's frustrating. Um, so, you know, very early on in our in our now what I guess I would call a career. I realized how important it is to kind of make sure that, you know, when you make a record, you can you can do whatever you want. You can it can be forty five minutes of fart songs if if that's what you want. Um, but at the same time, the the shows are for the audience. The the concerts are for the people who paid to see them, and you owe them access to their memories through your music to a reasonable extent. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've seen Paul McCartney many times, and, and I would like nothing better than if he were to play a B-Sides and Deep Cuts concert. That would be amazing. I'd love to hear something other than the hits that everyone knows that I love, too, but I've heard him perform many times. But probably most people would riot and say, what is this? And I paid how many hundreds of dollars to hear this song that I don't know? So, of course, you have to make that calculus. Plus, you have to relearn those songs. I think people probably think, oh, well, he wrote that song, so of course he knows how to play that. <laughs> but if it's a 20-year-old song, you, I imagine, have no idea how to play it. Although you've, of course, been playing some of these songs in your regular set list. But I'm sure there are some here probably that you've had to go back and relearn and replay for the first time in, in years. I know you, you toured on the 10th anniversary of, of Give Up as well, but 
how long do these things actually remain in your repertoire without <laughs> having to go back and relearn them from scratch? You know, they're in there um, <laughs> and, and they just need to be coaxed out. But I think, yeah. you know, you mentioned Paul McCartney, um, you know, some years ago, you know, going to drop a name here. Sorry, have to do it. Um, uh, I, I, I played this kind of little show with, uh, uh, it was at uh, Pete Townsend was putting on this kind of variety show at the Troubadour. And the angle was like, yeah, pick a couple who songs or Pete Townsend songs you want to play and you'll play them with Pete. And I, I had met Pete a couple times at that point. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I knew him, but, you know, I felt comfortable picking a couple songs and I picked uh, one of my favorite Who songs, a song called Marianne with the Shaky Hands that's on yeah. the Who Sell Out. It's one of my favorite songs. Mm-hmm. And um, and we're kind of rehearsing it in soundcheck. And, you know, I don't mean to, like, I'm not trying to insult Pete Townsend here or blow up his spot, but <laughs> I, I, I looked over at him and he was saying to himself, what are the chords to this thing? <laughs> right. and, I, and I just was like, and there was a moment where I was like, how does he not know this song? He wrote it. Yeah, in 1967. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm sitting here with my own song. I'm like, what are the chords to this thing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And it's a, a weird thing to be called upon to revisit these things that you wrote when you were in a very different place in life. And I think there are some people who feel very connected to their younger selves. Like, I, I feel more or less the same as I always did. There are also people who look back and think, I don't even recognize that person. I don't like that person. I'm completely different from that person. And musicians, I think, maybe uniquely among artists, just are constantly reminded about who they were when they were in their teens or their 20s. I mean, you're playing songs in your mid-40s that that you wrote and performed for the first time in your mid-20s, and you're not the same person. So I, I wonder whether you still connect to those or, or whether there are things that you feel like, gosh, this is a, an alien sentiment to me, or whether some of it rings even more true than it did at the time. Well, actually, in this case, Ben, I'm exactly the same person. I have not... <laughs> yeah, I, have, I mean, I you have look not, the same. I, yeah. I, have not, I have not aged or grown no. emotionally in the last 20 years, and I've done that on purpose <laughs> uh, because I am a musician, and we don't do that. We don't, we don't, grow, uh, we don't, we don't try to evolve in any way whatsoever. Um, no, but it's... I mean, yeah, it is... It is um, there are certainly sentiments in some of those songs that I don't cringe over, but... Um, I certainly would not write a lot of that, some of those songs now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would kind of come at those songs, that those kind of moments or, or people that I wrote about in a, in a probably in a different way and in probably a more sympathetic, compassionate way. But, you know, I, you know, I, I always think about this. I don't know if either of you or any of the listeners have seen uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox mm-hmm. story, oh, yeah. um, which is a, there's a great scene in the beginning of the film where like, you know, Dewey Cox is like, he's kind of like his hand up against on his head. He's kind of leaning against the side of the stage, off stage. And somebody says, like, don't bother him. Before he goes on stage, he has to relive every moment in his life, you know. <laughs> and it's this like, and then the movie kind of goes from there. Um, and it's it's not so much that it's not so much that that I have to do that. But in order to kind of perform the songs and in some way even, even remember the lyrics, mm-hmm. I have to kind of in my mind's eye be in that headspace again. I have to, I have to, I have to see those people in my mind's eye. I have to remember those scenarios after I sometimes put myself in the place of where I was when I wrote it, you know, like literally like I'm writing the song on a friend's piano in a basement in Seattle and I'm, I'm performing passenger seat and I'm in that basement, you know, playing that, you know, wonky piano. 
And to me, it's, it's, it's really about to visualize those people and those places is also to honor them again. It's to kind of, you know, one of the most important, one of the, one of the reasons that Kerouac had made such an impression on me is that I really loved how he kind of created these like larger than life characters from these very normal people in his life, you know, and in my own small way, I've wanted to do that with people who are important to me in my life to kind of, you know, to have the mythology of some of these songs be like, yeah, who's Kelly Huckabee? You know, song for Kelly, who's that guy? You know, (laughs) Um, and then maybe somebody's like trying to find him on Instagram or something. Uh, You know, uh, he's there. He's living in he's living in Lusaka, Zambia right now. Um, But uh, but yeah, no, it's it's. And so that's an enjoyable sometimes I would never say painful, but sometimes a complicated experience and it's going to be the entirety of the experience on stage in this particular tour yeah i was going to ask about that because you know you're someone who writes about relationships even if it's not explicit it's inspired by something you experienced in real life and it's got to be different tapping into that vein over and over and over again over decades it can't feel quite the same today as it did when it was fresh in your mind and you're first writing and touring this. So I wondered whether it became kind of divorced from the original sentiment eventually, but it, it sounds like you you do your best to tap into that original motion. And I guess there are some things that you you might change. I know you would change your third quarter to third period in nothing better to yeah, appease, right. <laughs> appease the hockey fans out yeah. there. Or, you know, I, there are songs I, I know you've talked about. If you do a, a plans 20th anniversary tour i know you've you've talked about someday you will be loved as as not your favorite song in your oeuvre right that uh you know yeah, that one back. was a little that one was a little lazy i should, I should. <laughs> right but i guess you can't change it now it's sort of set in stone or set in wax right and people expect the words to be the same there are definitely you know people perform songs differently than they sound in the original record although sometimes if you stray too much if you do the dylan where you don't even realize that it's that song until halfway through right right, then people (laughs) feel like they're not getting the authentic experience so that's something you need to navigate too I, i guess it has to remain interesting to you but recognizable to people who say, I love this album. I want this to sound like the album did. Yeah. And and I think you have to honor that. And I, you know, I would also say to that point, you know, there are people, you know, who exist across both of these records. They're, they're, they're written about on transatlanticism and give up. And, you know, one of the kind of, you know, I, you know, there are certainly things about getting older that are frustrating you know, waking up in pain every morning is kind of, you know, just like, oh, God, <laughs> like just getting out of bed uh, is, you know, is, I don't remember waking up sore uh, when I was 22. I would I could do without. But I one of the you know beautiful things about getting older is you look around and you realize that, you know, if you're a halfway decent person, you know, you've had relationships with people for decades. And, you know, there are, you know, people who exist in these records who they might have been people that I was with romantically or that, you know, had had falling out, fallings out with at a certain point, but then now are like people who are very near and dear to me. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing to kind of, you know, reach out to somebody, you know, who's on these records and be like, Hey, you want to come to the show? It's like, yeah, I'm bringing my kids. They, they're super excited, you know? Right. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's, it really is like a testament to how, and maybe I'm waxing a little too romantic about this, but that music is kind of a living organism, you know? Yeah. It, it continues to kind of, you know, these songs, any song really, it continues to kind of morph and change and its meanings tend to kind of, you know, because they are augmented over time as one ages with them. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the circumstances that produced these albums, a, a fairly happy, harmonious time for, for you and your bands, right? As opposed to some others that were more contentious or more rushed. So uh, people think sometimes that you need that conflict to produce great art. And I guess that can be true sometimes, just as in baseball, sometimes you have teams that are at each other's throats that are great. And sometimes you have teams that get along great, like these Mariners seem to. And that plays into their success, or at least it maybe it stems from their success. But hopefully the, the period of recording these albums is a, a happy one to return to in your mind more so than, than some. But I, I did have one last kind of weird one for you, which is that you're someone known for, for very literate lyrics and very emotional lyrics, but you're also a fan of, of poppy songs and, and 60s songs and the monkeys, and you are not afraid to just throw in a ba-ba or <laughs> some sort of just uh, marking time, making a sound with your mouth that is not a word, which was standing out to me as I was re-listening to transatlanticism. And, you know, it's the sound of settling, ba-ba. And then it's, you know, Ivory Lines lead, wah-ho. Yeah. And, <laughs> which is, uh, that's an unusual one, at least. I guess you, you couldn't go with wahoo. That wouldn't fit the song so well. But, but I wonder w- what the art of sticking in a, a ba-da-ba or a doo-doo or some sort of nonsense sound that can often be very memorable, that can kind of give you your hook and your chorus. But it's like, I'm Ben Gibbard. People are expecting, you know, profundity and uh, and like letting out all my my feelings here. And I'm just going to say ba-ba and that'll be incredibly catchy. But how do you know when it's time to do that? Is it like a placeholder that becomes permanent? You know that's a really good question, Ben. I haven't, I haven't really reckoned. I have in the, in the twenty plus years since I wrote Lightness, I've never thought about what an odd thing to sing "Uwaho" is. Yeah. It's really not. I mean, I'm not going to like sit here and say I invented it or something like that. But I've, I can't, I'm, tr- I'm racking my brain to think of where I pulled that from. Right. And it doesn't feel like the kind of thing that uh, I'm, I'm sure there's. You know, there are certainly uh, ad libby kind of non. Uh, well, I guess they're verbal, but non word based kind of ad lib yeah. things that exist in throughout pop music. You know, there there have certainly been times where I have thrown one of those in there um, rather than write a, a lyric. Mm-hmm. And it seems like very much like a feel thing. Yeah. But then there are, there are moments where, and I, I'm struggling to kind of give a good example right now that, you know, you'll hear a song out in the world that like barely has any lyrics. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go like, I'm really trying too hard. This is really like, I, you know, it's like, I'm not saying that if we wrote less words, we would be more successful, but clearly you don't need this many words <laughs> to sell a lot of albums, you know, at least, or a lot of streams or whatever. Um, but at the same time, every time I try to, there are moments where I try to write minimally. Like I, I you know, we will be doing, in, you know, in the band when we were making Asphalt Meadows, during the pandemic, we would do these weekly kind of songs together, which, you know, we talked about a lot at the time, kind of file sharing. And we would often give ourselves directives, like a directive might be like play an instrument that you don't you've never played before. You know, don't play your bass guitar, play something else in your studio that you've never used on a recording before. Let's see where we can get with that. And, you know, I a couple times the directive would be like as few words as possible. And I just learned, you know, over the course of my career as a songwriter that using less words to 
evoke a similar feeling or emotion or tell a similar story is incredibly difficult. It's really one of the most difficult things to do in songwriting. And it's one of the reasons that somebody like Randy Newman is such a genius, is that he's able to use so few words and, and, and tell such evocative stories. And it's something I just lack the ability to do. So what are you listening to these days? See, I, I am super into the new Blur album. Mm. Mm. It is really hitting with me right now for a number of reasons. And, you know, I've always been a huge Blur fan. Um, but I think because our career has been as long as it has, I have a vested interest in career artists, usually over, not at the expense of younger, newer artists. Um, but, you know, when a, a, and a band full of old people makes a really transcendent record and, ha- and shows they have new things to say, uh, that's really inspiring to me because that's where kind of I'm at in my life. Um, there's a there's a band from Seattle called Sea Lemon that just put out a new EP that I'm really enjoying. They kind of have like a 90s, you know, big shoegazy downstroke kind of energy to them that I really enjoy. Yeah, and then I and we're actually, you know, we're taking our friends out uh, in this band called The Beths from yeah. uh, New Zealand who are phenomenal. They're 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 wonderful people. They're such a great band. I think that Liz is arguably the greatest songwriter of her generation. Uh, no hyperbole. I think she's just phenomenal. And, you know, I, I I want them to take over the world. That's that's what I want more than anything. I saw them live in Phoenix when they rolled through and they are fantastic. They they play a hell of a live show, too. Like, they're really great. <laughs> and they're so funny. Like, they are the funniest. <laughs> I don't know if they were funny on stage, but they are they they are so personable and so wonderful and yeah i'm just really looking forward to kind of seeing playing with them a bunch i i saw them in seattle on that same tour uh yeah like the day after we got back from europe and it was we had we had we had toured with them in europe we had taken them out um a couple years before the pandemic and um and you know i don't get a lot of opportunities to see bands in front of their own crowds Mm. uh not that because i'm uh, adverse to going out but just a lot of times i'm on tour or i'm doing i i'm not in a, in a place to go see a show. You know, we just got back from tour. I don't want to go to a show. I just want to uh, watch Criterion uh, Collection and just not leave the house and watch yeah. baseball. Um, <laughs> but going, I saw them at Numo's here in Seattle and seeing them play in front of their own crowd. It's like such a wonderful thing to see a band that you love and that, you know, that you consider friends in front of a group of people who just absolutely adore them. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I want the world for them. I think that, you know, they they should be headlining arenas if if the world was a uh, if there was any justice in this world. Well, you can go see band two bands headline some arenas and other places starting soon. September fifth, the tour kicks off in D.C. Thirty one dates goes through October seventeenth. Sometimes with the Beths and Built to Spill and Iron and Wine and other openers and some people are calling our guest today the Shohei Otani of indie rock. So. Make sure you don't miss this chance to see both of his bands and his two-way act. And if you are in the front row for one of these concerts while the Mariners are playing a postseason game, then yell out loud what is happening. He does not mind spoilers, it sounds like. And I want to be clear. I'm not the one saying that. I'm not the one saying I'm the show Hey Otani Vinny Rock. I have nothing to do with that. No. This, this is People are saying this. Yeah. People are just saying this. You know. In the ether. Yeah. Yeah. It's just word of mouth. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ben. Good luck with the tour. Thank you. 
And just to update everyone post-interview, the Mariners did win on Death Cabbie for Cutie Day. So they remain tied for first place with the Astros. It's a two-way tie now. And according to Sarah Langs, it's the third time since divisions were formed in 1969 that three teams in the same division were within one game or less of the lead entering September. 1969 NL West, 1980 NL East, 2023 AL West. Ben, this Ben, Ben Lindbergh, my co-host yes. Ben. Um, the one who can't talk. I'm going to take us to conclusion with the future blast, if you'll allow, because you should stop talking. I would welcome and encourage that, yes. Yes, so here is the future blast. The future blast is brought to you, as always, by Rick Wilbur. Rick is an award-winning editor, writer, and college professor, and has been described as the dean of science fiction baseball. And this future blast comes to you from 2053. As their team and their city continue to recover from the terrible New Madrid quake of the previous season, the St. Louis Cardinals were the darlings of the pundits as they marched through spring training in their new-slash-old facility at refurbished Al Lang Stadium in St. Petersburg, Florida. The Cardinals had trained in that ballpark from its opening in 1947 until 1998 when the Tampa Bay Devil Rays took over in their inaugural big league season, and the Cardinals moved across the state to Jupiter, Florida. Ultimately, the Rays left for Nashville, and Al Lang Stadium became the home of the second-division Tampa Bay Rowdies Soccer Club. In 2053, the Rowdies were promoted into Major League Soccer with their new stadium in Clearwater, and the Cardinals and the city of St. Pete spent $47 million refurbishing Al Lang and the nearby campus practice fields of the University of South Florida at St. Petersburg to big league spring training standards. It was a huge success as the Cardinals sprinted to a sparkling 25-5 and spring training record and historic Al Lang Stadium sold out all 15,000 seats game after game, perhaps St. Pete had belatedly embraced baseball after all those years of low attendance with the race. Alas, reality caught up with the Cardinals in the regular season, where injuries to slugger Ernesto Delgado and a mediocre second season from pitching phenom Eric Mink were indicative of the team's troubles as they slid into a modestly successful 89-win regular season, a playoff wildcard slot win, and then those four straight losses to the London Monarchs to end their season. The Monarchs went on to win the World Series in six games over the Los Angeles Dodgers for their second World Championship. Okay. That'll do it for today. I'll play us out so Ben can rest his voice and simply remind everyone that you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and get access to a few special perks. Richard Old, Matt Longo, Casey Reed, Paul, and Kirk Krager. Thanks very much. Those Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, monthly bonus episodes, access to our playoff streams, and much, much more. You can check it all out on patreon.com. You can follow us on Twitter at EWPod or on Blueski using the same handle. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Ben coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his production and editing assistance. Ben and I will be back with another pod a little later this week, provided Ben can speak. Until then, have a great week and thanks for listening. Effectively wild.